Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 347 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, all by myself today. And we're excited to say that today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Blackstone Publishing. Uh, the main part of today's episode is going to be an interview I did with Cadwell Turnbull. Uh, he's the author of the debut title, The Lesson, which comes out to today if you're listening to this Tuesday, uh, tomorrow if you're listening to it on the day that it releases, which is uh, Monday. So the main part of this entire episode is going to be Cadwell and I talking about The Lesson, which is this really, really unique story about an advanced race of aliens settling in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, and we talk a lot about colonialism and a lot of what he uses uh, to represent the U.S. Virgin Islands' actual history in this story and lots of really great stuff. Um, and it's a wonderful book from Blackstone that we are very excited for you to check out. And they also provided two other options of titles that are also available now that you, uh, if, you if you're interested in the lesson, I think you'll really like these two as well. So the first one is Another Life by Robert Haller. Uh, set during one summer in a small town in upstate New York, Robert Haller's debut novel, Another Life, is a modern comedy with a dark edge centered around an evangelical church. Christopher Castellani, author of Leading Men, praised the novel by saying, a fresh voice meets an old soul in Robert Haller, whose Another Life won me over completely with its dark humor, refined earnestness, and uncommon wisdom. Uh, this is available now. It actually came out on June 4th, and you can get it as a physical book, an ebook, or an audiobook. And then the other one that I want to point out that I think you'll very much enjoy is called Blackberry and Wild Rose by Sonia Velton, and this came out in May, so you can go get this one now as well. In 18th century London, a household of Huguenot silk weavers pursue the perfect silk design, while unrest among the journeymen silk weavers boils over into riot and rebellion. In Blackberry and Wild Rose, which is a historical fiction debut novel, it's now available, uh, it's for fans of Jesse Burton's The Miniaturist, and you're going to really love this engrossing atmospheric tale of two women struggling for control of their own lives. And again, this is also available now. Both of those, Another Life and Blackberry and Wild Rose, uh, are now available. And Cadwell Turnbull's The Lesson comes out, again, June 18th. So if you're listening to this on release day, it'll be tomorrow. I'd like to thank Blackstone Publishing for uh, sponsoring this episode. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can, of course, always go to professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And you can just shoot us an email at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Uh, a lot of you guys have been doing that lately for book recommendations in addition to what we do on the episode, which we love. So love hearing from you guys. Keep those coming. We'll respond as quickly as we can. Uh, this week is the American Library Association uh, annual conferences in Washington, D.C. So if you're a librarian or just someone who is going to be in that area and you're planning on attending that conference, be sure to come by the Overdrive booth because Jill and I will both be there doing some author interviews and presentations and all sorts of fun stuff. So come take a picture. Come say hey. Um, yeah, it'll be a whole lot of fun. So definitely if you're going to be in D.C. this weekend, hope to see you there. Uh, sweating and being very, very muggy. So it's going to be in the 90s and rainy. So uh, that should be a blast. Okay, 
I'm going to let you guys get to the main portion of this episode, which is an interview I did with Cadwell Turnbull, all about his debut novel, The Lesson, on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Adam again from the Professional Book Nerds, and today I am incredibly excited to be joined by Cadwell Turnbull, whose debut novel, The Lesson, comes out this June. You can also find some of his short stories that have been published uh, in various science fiction magazines, and he's won several science fiction and fantasy short fiction awards, and uh, the book that we're going to talk about today, The Lesson, his debut book, is really, really fun. It's really fascinating. There's a whole lot in here, so I'm really excited to dive in. So first off, Cadwell, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so can you kind of get us started by giving our listeners an introduction to The Lesson, because it's a really well thought out and interesting story, and I, I think they would be better served hearing it from you as opposed to me. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so the lesson is um, a first contact novel. It's set in the Virgin Islands in the near future. Um, aliens have arrived and they've been occupying the territory for a number of years. Um, they call it Ina. They offer um, a bunch of technology and resources in exchange for some time to do research. And they don't really tell us why, what the research is, or why, why they're um, taking the time to do it here. Um, and that arrangement would be fine if it wasn't for the fact that the Ina responds to threats. Um, and this is like basic threats like a barking dog <laughs> or um, being brushed up against in public with extreme acts of violence. Um, and so the story pretty much follows three families and their how they respond to the Ina presence and also looks at how the community responds to the Ina presence, um, how it affects their culture, how it affects the, um, the, um, the relationships on the island. Um, and so multiple perspectives exploring this, this theme of colonization. I was, I'm glad you, you brought up colonization because I was actually just going to ask. I know that you're originally from that area of the world, but why was it so important for you to set this story in the Virgin Islands? Right. Um, <clears throat> so the the lesson, the, what became the book, but, um, before it was a book, um, I actually was working on it for a while as um, a series of stories, and it came out of a dream I had. Um, and in the dream, there was an alien civilization, a society that had integrated into the human society, um, pretty much like the book. Um, but they, they also had the same, um, the same problem where they would respond to threats with violence. And it focused, the dream focused on um, this female alien that was experiencing a lot of guilt about that and was asking moral questions. And so in the beginning, it very much was not in the Virgin Islands context at all. Um, I decided to put it in the Virgin Islands context because over time as I, w as I was working on it, it seemed to me to be a really good parallel to colonialism. Um, there's a lot of um, the, the way Ina responds to humanity reminds me, at least, of how um, the world powers respond to marginalized people in small places. So there's a kind of benevolence, but there's also a sort of um, 
um, looking down upon or not seeing the full humanness of um, these peoples. And so um, once I once I started working on the Ina and started fleshing out their character, their background, their culture, it became more and more apparent that the Ina, despite their benevolence, um, really did not care about the humanity of the people they were living next to. And it seemed to me like a really good opportunity to have a larger conversation about um, colonialism. That's that's such an interesting way of putting it, because I think you're absolutely right when it comes to colonialism. So many times there's been so many countries that are, you know, consider themselves, quote unquote, great either empires or democracies, whatever they want to consider themselves. And then they go to these other locations where people are living perfectly happy lives and they'll bring what as that kind of greater power, what they see as these amazing gifts. And they'll, you know, sometimes they'll bestow them upon these people that they're really taking over their lands. And a lot of times the the people that they're trying to colonize don't see it that way. And they also are happy with the life that they've been, you know, been living without these sort of greater, you know, greater beings, if you will, uh, coming into their space. So I think it's a really interesting kind of dichotomy of, of putting, you know, this from an alien invasion standpoint. I think it's a really unique take because like you said, being a first contact story, there is a lot of those obviously out in the world that you can see, but this is such a different way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and part of it with uh, at least the, um, these powers that we're talking about, um, these colonizing powers, is that a failure of imagination. When they come to a place and um, they see how the people are living and they, they're not able to see that those, those cultures are, are happy, they're, they're, um, they're complete, they're, they're satisfied with their existence. Um, it's, it's um, the hubris of thinking that the, the, the way that you've arrived at living in the world is the only way to live in the world. And the Ina pretty much bring that ideology with them when they come to Earth. They have... They have an idea of how you should act in the universe, and they bring that to um, their relationship with humans, and they kind of um, look down on humans for not having the same mentality or ideology that they do. Something that you do from a a craft kind of storytelling standpoint that I really loved, and it's a unique take on this type of story, is the book opens with, you know, an introduction to all of these characters that you're going to be interacting with throughout the story. And there's, there is the, you know, the first contact situation, but then you kind of flash forward like five years or so. And I just thought it was a really unique way of being able to tell a story without doing those, you know, kind of standard tropes you might see from a first contact story. But what for you went into that decision to kind of move forward with time and then what did that enable you to do as an author from a a storytelling standpoint? Right. Um, Yeah, I I think I was interested in um, looking at it from an anthropological perspective, like trying to um, create a new normal. So I wanted to jump ahead a bit to give myself the opportunity to really delve into what the culture would look like once the people living there were accustomed to the Ina's presence. Um, and it was kind of, you know, in some ways trying to capture that dream logic that I had when, um, when I was, when I, the initial dream that I had where the aliens were already really integrated into the society and 
they just looked like humans. And the humans knew who the aliens were, but you couldn't really tell just by looking at interactions. You really had to be paying attention. And um, it was something that I thought was a really cool idea. Um, so I wanted to, first of, all, first of all, set up the human beings before the aliens so that you can get them in their own context. But then also give them this new context, this new normal, um, and give the reader an opportunity to kind of acclimate over time to the new normal. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it just kind of came out organically from the process. So I have to imagine, though, like one of the things you were able to put into the after the flash forward is, as you mentioned, you know, the Ina are very, um, I guess benevolent is a, is a decent word to use with the, the gifts they're bestowing. But as you mentioned, with the fact that, you know, kind of at the, the drop of a hat, they can become extremely violent. Like, I imagine it was interesting from a writing standpoint to know that you had to put in that kind of heightened sense of awareness for the you know the humans that are in this story like to me that's, that had to be such a, a fun thing to kind of play in the space with understanding how they would interact with these people who seeming or these you know these beings who seemingly have so much to offer but at, at any given moment they could completely kind of flip on on their human characters mm-hmm. yeah and just murder you. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. It was fun, um, especially in the scenes um, where the humans know the aliens are there or know that there's an alien in the area, and they're acting normal for the most part, but there's a, um, a sense of tension. And so it, it, was really, um, it was really fun to write those particular moments where it, it looks normal, everything's normal, but there's there's a um a layer of uneasiness there because they know that this could turn at any moment um i just i don't know i don't know how how i arrived at it when i was working on it but it was it was really was really exciting to be able to write those scenes show the tension and then also like pay it off or not pay it off Mm -hmm. um so sometimes like nothing would happen it would just be um nice or relatively um nice and then um sometimes something terrible would happen and it was um it was a really cool opportunity to play with expectations i was just gonna say that playing with that with that expectation is such a great way to honestly build even more suspense because you know i think the best kind of horror movies do this as well especially horror movies that are set in you know science fiction and, and fantasy realms is like i think the, the best ways to do that is when there is an expected uh you know moment of terror or violence or something and then you you don't provide it i feel like exactly what you said it's that is a really unique that's a great way of, of building even further tension down the road so people think that they're being relieved but in reality there's even more you know, being pent up and wondering when the other shoe's going to drop yeah, and it's it's um, it's also like a really good parallel to how the Ina operate in the world, anyway, because um, you really don't know what's gonna specifically set them off. Um, sometimes they respond, you know, in a in a pretty gentle way, um, and this is especially true of the ambassador. The ambassador isn't particularly violent in the book, but um, every so often 
um, they'll do something that is surprising. Like, um, you know, there's a scene with a barking dog and um, the, the you know, responds with uh, a disproportionate amount of violence there. Um, but then there's other scenes where the, the Ina just kind of walk down the street and it's, it's not, there's no, there's no threat of violence unless someone, you know, pushes them. You, you mentioned using kind of, there, there's one specific alien character that, that you have that is a little bit less violent and uh, is kind of their representative. You also sort of use this character's point of view, which is something you don't usually or always see in these types of books. So what made you want to use that, again, as like a dynamic for the storytelling is kind of giving her perspective on everything? Right. Um, I mean, part of what's cool about Mira is that um, she's been around for a really long time. And so she's had an opportunity to see a lot of different aspects of humanity. So um, I, I don't know if this is a, a big spoiler, but she's, you know, she's, she's there during slavery. Mm-hmm. And so she gets to see um, this, um, this kind of um, subordinate structure that humans have created among themselves and um, power dynamics there. And um, I think that that had a really great impact on her. Well, not a great impact, but it had a profound impact on her. Um, early on, she started to see um, how relationships and, and power structures can be um, problematic or dangerous. Um, and so I think through her experiencing these different eras of, um, of Virgin Islands history, she gets to engage more with humanity. And so she's bringing that into the present day. She's bringing that into her um, interactions with the humans um, as an ambassador, but also with the Ina. And it was um, it was a really good opportunity for me to um, show someone that's an outsider, but also has a really intimate knowledge of um, the human beings um, and has a really intimate knowledge of the history of the Virgin Islands. Um, she's an alien, but you know, in some ways, she possesses more knowledge than anybody. And so it was. Um, giving her the opportunity to speak, giving her the opportunity to um, to tell her story um, through time, I thought was really important for kind of like forming like, um, I don't know, the backbone of the book. I think that we get to see um, her early relationships with humans and how it informs her relationships now. And she's not, um, not even by the end of the book, I don't think that her journey is complete as a um, as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, she still has some really um, troubling ideas, but I do think that um, her empathy informs a lot of the decisions she makes in the book. And I think that that was important to show because I didn't want the Ina to just be, it's not much that's twirly villains, but I didn't want them to just be flat. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give them um, show that they have a potential to change if they have the context to change. And it's so important to me when telling stories to have, to show how context changes people. Yeah, no, I agree. There, there's definitely layers to them. Like, there's no, this definitely isn't like a, there's there's shades of gray in here for sure. There's not, it's not like a, a black and white story. Um, I, I'm curious, how much time did you spend in the Virgin Islands? Like, did you actually grow up there or were you, born there and kind of moved away like how much time did you actually spend there when you were growing up right um 
<clears throat> so my family is all all my family's from the Caribbean. My my father's side of the family um is from originally from Tortola and they moved over to the the US Virgin Islands. Um and they've been, you know, a few generations over. Mm-hmm. Um and then my mom's side has, you know, kinda migrated up from um the Lesser Antilles and they um they've been here for a couple of generations as well, to, in the Virgin Islands. And um, so I grew up in the Virgin Islands. I wasn't born there. My dad was, at the time was um, was serving in the military and we were in um, Maryland mm-hmm. um, for like maybe, I don't remember any of this, but maybe um, the, my first year or maybe a few months of my, you know, for, before I turned one. Mm-hmm. And then I, I came down to the Virgin Islands and I lived there pretty much until um, I was 18 and I went away to college. And then I lived there again in my 20s. Um, and my mom still lives there. Um, my niece, my, my, I, have, I have extended family and friends. Um, yeah, it's, it's what I consider home. It's a place that um, I, c- I tend to return to when I'm writing because it's a place that I'm, I'm most familiar with. Um, yeah, it's... it's um, when I was working on the book itself, though, mm-hmm. I only got to go back a couple times. And, and th- it was one of the things that I was kind of um, sad about because um, I really felt like, um, I mean, I had like huge ambitions for the book. I wanted to tell the whole history of the Virgin Islands, and then I got more pragmatic as I was working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, when I got back there for, uh, um, for those trips, I was only able to spend a few days, and mostly what I did was I went to the places that I was setting scenes in the book um, there, and I tried to make sure that I was getting those details right. And um, um, that was um, a really good opportunity for me. It also was really strange because I was going back to a place that I considered to be really familiar, but I was looking at it from an unfamiliar lens. I I was looking at it from the outside. And so it was um it was interesting to to do that, to kinda like step away and approach the place as um as a setting for a book, um, and not just my life. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I guess that the reason I'm asking is because I'm thinking about like your experience, like you said, you know, spending so much time there but then, you know, writing the bulk of the novel in a space kind of like looking at your setting from the outside looking in it almost seems to me like like Mira is a lot of like maybe like a representation like of you for the author like you know so much about this place but you weren't there when you were writing it to me I could see you know her knowing the history of the space and having this kind of connection like to me it almost looks like she's like a representation of, of you while you're in the story or am I just completely kind of projecting that onto you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think, I don't think that's, um, that's an unfair statement. Um, I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was doing this book was that there's a lot of, you kind of, when you grow up in a place, you take for granted that you know, like I, I thought I understood, um, the Virgin Islands, so I understood St. Thomas. Um, but once I, when I came back um, with the idea of like trying to commit this to fiction, I 
I went to places and I looked at it, it with fresh eyes and I and I read things and I learned things about the Virgin Islands that I didn't know. Like I um I didn't know um its history of um of religion. Like there's a lot of denominations that kind of set root in the Virgin Islands and um it's it's um really cool to see all of these di- different denominations of Christianity that was trying to influence the state populations, but from their particular camp. Um, and growing up, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't odd to drive by churches uh, and drive by like a Moravian church or um, um, a Seventh Day Adventist church, a Catholic church, um, um, a Methodist church, and not think anything of it. But um, once I started reading, you know, um, books about the subject, I started to learn that, you know, this was like, this was actually like a really um, interesting time in history for the Virgin Islands where all of these churches started propping up and started like trying to bring um, the slave populations over to their sides. Um, you know, there was also a bunch of stuff that didn't make it into the book, but like about privateering and piracy. Mm-hmm. Um um, the early the early years of um, um, the U.S. Um, um, buying the territory and um, kind of setting up a sort of martial law. There was it was a long time before the Virgin Islands really had any um, significant say in their own um, government. Um, the U.S. was governing for a long time um, through the military, um, and so there was all of these things that I had taken for granted as a person that lived there um, that. Once I started looking at it from the outside, like 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 from an alien mm-hmm. um, perspective, I was like, oh, I don't know this place. I I thought I knew this place, um, but I really don't. And and you, you can talk to. Um, I have friends um, and like I said, family that live there, and um, some of this stuff would be news to them. Like it's um, it's not. It's not like we we um, sit around and have conversations about Virgin Islands history. And I think that if you're if you're from the Virgin Islands and you already think you know what the Virgin Islands is, um, a lot of this stuff will just slip by you. So it was really a really good opportunity to question my own assumptions. And, you know, like you said, I've, I've been, I've not, I visit a lot and I lived there in my 20s, but I haven't been there um, in, in a while. I haven't um, lived there um, for, for some time. And so... It's also like this Virgin Islands that I write and render in the lesson is also a very personal one, informed by reading and research and talking to people. But it's it's my Virgin Islands. It's the one that I feel um, I remember or I feel connected to. But it, it might be different for someone else, especially someone else that is living there right now. But you're absolutely right about how when you are living somewhere, you you really you form these patterns and this the way of life that you you have your kind of daily routines and all these different things, and you see everything a certain way. And then, like you said, if if you move out and then come back for an extended period of time, like my wife and I were building a house, and for a couple of months we lived with my parents because we had nowhere else to live with our dogs, and living in their house, this house that I grew up in. Then in my you know early thirties at this time, there was so many things about my own city that I grew up in and spent all my my time in that you just you do you look at it, whether it's because you've kind of aged a little bit and you have a different perspective on things like 
I have to imagine it actually was really, like you said, it was really beneficial to be able to do that, to see it both as a person who knew so much about the the islands, but also looking at it from a person who, you know, was equal parts of that, as well as looking at these different locations, you know, from the outside looking in. Like, I have to imagine that added a lot of layers to your story. It's almost like you had two perspectives of the settings you were creating. Right, right. There's a really um, interesting story that I think like really hits upon this really well. Um, when I was doing research for the for the book, um, I learned that there was a, a synagogue in in downtown Charlotte Amalia, and I had not known this the entire time I was growing up there. And it's actually to get to it, you have to go through a bunch of like really small winding roads. Um, and the, that, that, um, synagogue is actually one of the oldest in the Western mm-hmm. Hemisphere and that the Jewish population, um, is pretty well integrated to the, um, to, into the Virgin Islands population. But I did not know that. That was something that I had, uh, I had discovered through reading, oddly enough. And then, um, I kind of, I kind of passed by it. I didn't get to see it from mm-hmm. the inside, but, um, it's one of those things that you just, even with, like, St. Thomas is, I think, 32 square miles. Um, even with an island that small, there's mm-hmm. so much history there um, that even if you lived there 100 years, you would not be able to tap all of it. Um, and so that was really an um, interesting experience for me to, like, um, go places and, uh, and realizing that I had never been there. There's a scene in the lesson that takes place in Hall Bay. Um, I'd been there as a kid, but I never, I didn't know how to get there. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, um, it's, it's down a few winding roads. Um, it's actually like a, a bay where a lot of boats dock. And so it's not really like, um, uh, uh, the beach isn't really, um, one that people use a lot to swim. Though people do use it to swim, but it's more of like a, a fishing area. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's really hard to find. I got lost a few times trying to get there to um, to to look at the place to um, to make sure that I was getting all the details right for the scene I was writing. And so um, it was it was kind of mind blowing to to realize how how little you can know while while knowing a lot. Like I know a lot about St. Thomas, but really I don't know anything. I still don't know anything. Um, there's this really beautiful scene that happened um, when I went down to Hull Bay where I was looking at the water and I saw, it was nighttime, and I saw like a bunch of um, like long eel-like things floating in the water, just kind of moving with the waves. Mm-hmm. And I was standing on the dock and I took out my phone and I flashed it. I flashed the phone and a bunch of, fish eyes reflected back out of the water at me. <laughs> and that that was the first time that I had ever seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, like, where I live, where my mom's um, house is, and um, where I lived when I went back in my 20s, it's like, um, I don't know, like 10 minutes away from the beach. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's still, it, it still was so surprising for me to be, to be in a place and see fish kind of just hanging out near the water like they were sleeping mm-hmm. and just floating with the waves 
in like such large numbers. There was hundreds of them. Um, that's something that I would not have seen if I had taken for granted that I knew the place. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's just a lot of these examples that you just, you, you go back home and you realize, and you realize how, how surprising home is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you, you take for granted that you know places when you really don't. So what got you kind of started and interested in science fiction? I'm always curious, like, what were maybe some of the books you were growing up when you were younger? Or was this, you know, do you have family members who also were interested in science fiction? I'm just, I'm interested how you went down that path. <laughs> um, well, I think, I think this has to go to my mom. <laughs> um, my mom, I didn't watch any of, um, I'm not, I'm not a, a true Trekkie or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But um, my mom had, I think, like um, a few of the Next Generation movies. And so um, she had them in VHS and she would watch them all the time. Mm-hmm. I would watch them with her. And so I got into um, um, space stuff pretty early on, just getting, um, just looking at um, people traveling through space, visiting other planets, learning about other cultures. And um, when I was um, in high school, I started watching Stargate. I was really into Stargate. I'm still into Stargate. I still watch <laughs> Stargate. Um, I just finished rewatching Stargate Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I, I think I would be a, a gator. I guess uh-huh. alligator more than the turkey. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> um, but yeah. So so I think my way in was um, TV film, mm-hmm. um, and then like as I got older, I started reading books. Um, some of the early stuff I read was you know the stuff that they they um, they give to you in high school that you that you must read. Um, I read nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four is actually still one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. Um, Brave New World. Um, all these these like um, science fiction classics, um, and then once I got into college, I started reading um, Ursula Le Guin, mm-hmm. and um, that that really that really informed my in my decision to write science fiction um, and fantasy. Um, but be just like the, what I wanted to do with when I wrote in the genre, like um, I really appreciate her empathy when she's exploring character. And um, I really also appreciate the way she looks at um, conflicts. Like her conflicts are are gray and they're complex, and um, they're very much informed by cultural perspective. And so, um, once I started writing, um, that kind of naturally came out. I started writing about um, um, sci-fi as a vehicle of at looking at culture. Mm-hmm. Um, Octavia Butler as well. Um, though I arrived with, at Octavia Butler after Le Guin. Um, but, um, and I, I would say that I'm, I'm closer to Butler in terms of the kind of stuff I tend to move towards writing. But, um, yeah, it, it, it started out with, you know, just watching things with my mom mm-hmm. and then watching things on my own and then reading books that... Um, that I had to read and then reading books that I wanted to read. And, um, yeah, it's, it's something that kind of, um, now it just felt like it, it was going to happen anyway, but mm-hmm. it not thinking about it, that it definitely was a trajectory yeah. to start with movies. Yeah. 
Uh, so towards the end of our episodes, we like to do what we call the nerd nines. We have nine kind of lighthearted questions that I'm going to make you go through here. <laughs> um, so the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? Oh, okay. Um, I just finished reading um, White Cat by Holly Black. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of her... Um, her early books, um, and the, the Stranger Dreamer um, series by Lainey Taylor. I'm like kind of in a fantasy kick right now. Yeah, the um, Stranger Dreamer is so good. I love both of those books. She is wonderful. It's so good. I don't know how I don't know how she manages the scope. I just it's it's just wild to me how much she can pull into a book. I'm like, you could do that. It's just you know I don't know. It's like a a masterclass in. Um, being ambitious and pulling it off. So I, I actually had a, I, I sat down with Lainey Taylor uh, last year at um, BookCon, and I got to interview her and Naomi Novik and Rena Rosner about fairy tales. And I actually, like, when I met her, she was the first one who kind of showed up at our, our booth. And I literally told her I was mad at her because I had just finished Stranger Dreamer and Muse of Nightmares hadn't come out yet. And, you know, Stranger Dreamer, as you know, ends on a huge cliffhanger. And right. <laughs> I like, I was like, I'm so mad at you. Like, I did not see that coming. And she told me, honest, like she was completely honest with me. She's like, the reason that you didn't see it coming is because she was intending it to be one book, and she got like 95 percent of the way through, and she realized that she had so much more story to tell. So that's why that one is like so. Like you said about the scope, she's like, I didn't know I had that much story in me. So that's why that one's like so expansive. I was so mad at her. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, she just—I don't know. It must like, have been so much fun to nerd out too. Oh yeah, um, but that was like literally. Uh, it was literally the first thing I told. Her. I was just like, "I'm so mad at you," and she's like, "Hi, good to meet you too." And I was like, "No, no, no, <laughs> I have to yell at you first. <laughs> um, uh, okay, do you have a favorite place to read? A favorite? What was it? Do you have a favorite place to read? Oh, um, like. Like in in a in um like to sit down and read. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Um, I I like I like reading in the library. Um, and I, I specifically like reading in the library when I don't have any electronics next to me. Mm-hmm. I've just recently discovered that I can focus better when I don't have like a, a phone or a laptop open. And so sitting down in the library, surrounded by people, but they're kind of just, you know, quietly doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and reading is um, really good for me. I, I find that I concentrate best in that climate. Nice. Um, do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading as, as a kid? The book? Um, huh. I, hmm. So... I mean, I have two different um, answers to that question. I mean, mm-hmm. like, 1984 was the book that that um, has stayed with me um, the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the first book, and fell in love is a weird way to say this. I think I, <laughs> I, think I tend to like books that make me sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, read, I read The Diary of Anne Frank for, uh, for an essay assignment, mm-hmm. and... Um, I remember putting it off for a really long time because I, I was a kid and, you know, procrastination. Mm-hmm. But I I ended up opening that um, book and reading it all in one sitting. 
and then writing this really impassioned essay about it because um you know it's just it was just such a mind-opening mind-altering experience for me also just incredibly sad and just you know yeah you know connecting to being um being marginalized and oppressed and um seeing someone in a different time in a different place um having to deal with you know power and Mm -hmm. um i I think that it's just you know it informed everything after that and um yeah, my, I wrote that essay and I, I turned it in. And my my teacher, this was eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, my teacher told me that you know, I think you you should you should be a writer. And um, oh, wow. I think that was the first time that that occurred to me as a possibility. <laughs> so yeah. that's a pretty good reason to remember that book. Yeah, I think that works. Yeah. <laughs> um. Is there, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? One place. Just one. Just one, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had some, I had some friends in, in undergrad that were from Rwanda. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, they were just really cool people. And I'd like to visit Rwanda someday. Um, I would like to just be there. Yeah. Um, for you know, hopefully for enough time to get to you know really see the country, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I'll leave it at that. I could you know, well, I could make a a giant list. But you said one. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm making you pick one. Um, and then actually another thing, I have to, you have to pick one of. Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Favorite holiday? Um, <laughs> I mean. This is bad. Thanksgiving. Um, yeah. Food. Oh, yeah. No, Just that's the, it's the best one. There's food. You don't have to worry about <laughs> presents. It's the, absolutely the best one. Right, right. It's just a, it's an excuse to make all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't make mm-hmm. um, normally and eat everything. <laughs> and no one, no one's going to judge you because, you know, no, we made all this food, so eat it. Exactly. And, you know, it's pie. Like, I mean, and... Um, Back home, we have um, we we have all of the typical um, Thanksgiving stuff, and then some Caribbean stuff. You know, like make like fried fish and all kinds of other um, um, salt fish. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this thing called dukana, which is like a um, potato. No, not potato. Coconut, um, sweet potato, um, carrot, um, dumpling. It's kind of like um. it's a dough. You wrap it in foil and then you boil it. Oh, my, that sounds so good. <laughs> it's it's so good, and you know that that comes around you know only once a year, and then um, you know, but we also have like tarts, which is um, it's like pie, but the the dough is is this sweet um uh, kind of hard dough, and it's it looks like a pie, but we have all of these like um fillings that are different. So we have pineapple. We have guava, coconut, um, and the, we we eat those um, during Thanksgiving. Uh, my favorite is coconut, but um, my sister like will swear by pineapple. Um, guava is really good too. Um, it tends to be those three basic um, fillings. I, I am sending you an email when we're done having this conversation because I want recipes for <laughs> everything you just said. That sounds. So, I'm so hungry now. That sounds amazing. Um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea. Um, 
Coffee gives me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. I like cats too, and cats tend to show up in my fiction more weirdly enough. But um, <laughs> I I love dogs. Um, you I think you might answer this one, but do you have a favorite food? Um, <laughs> maybe the saltfish and dukana, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so saltfish so is this um, and I I think there's this um interesting history of like curing fish making so that it lasts longer so they'll salt the fish so that um it'll keep and then they'll have to rehydrate it Mm -hmm. and then um so so um in in the virgin islands we have um this this salted cod um that we rehydrate and make stew out of and it's really good and then we eat it with this the dumpling that i said um and it's it's just it's just really delicious. I don't get it enough, and so it, I think it. I I don't know if I would love it as much if I eat it every day, but it's what I remember the most because it's what I always want that that I can't have. Oh, um, this is the most hungry I've ever been doing these questions. I have to tell <laughs> that sounds so good. Um, last one of these: If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? Laguin, hands down. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I really, I, I wish I got to meet her in life. She's truly incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the opportunity to talk about books and stuff. Yeah. And then uh, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading the lesson? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I've gotten people, people have said that the, the lesson itself is pretty ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what what exactly is what? What am I talking about when I say the lesson? <laughs> um, and so, you know, part of I kind of resist the question because I'm like, um, I don't want to be prescriptive. It's about what it would mean to readers. I kind of want readers to bring what they want to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, I guess, um, to be very basic, I think that um, I would want readers to think about how how context informs the decisions people make and how trauma um, has cycles and that you know um, m- making a decision based on trauma doesn't just affect the now it affects the future and um, I think that that's something that is expressed not just with the Ina but the, the entire history of the Virgin Islands and the characters in the story that you know a lot of the decisions that they have to make, they make out of trauma. And so sometimes those decisions aren't the best ones. Um, but understanding how how trauma moves through time, I think allows us to have empathy for decisions that people make, but also to kind of be, um, I don't know, aware of the decisions and to maybe choose better courses. Um, yeah. That is a awesome answer. Cadwell, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. 
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.